Did you know that ecotourism improves the quality of life for locals? This episode of TripCast 360 is sponsored by David's Cruise Vacation, a travel agency that specializes in both land and sea adventures for the intrepid traveler. Book now at davidscruisevacations.com and experience that hands-on personal service. Hello and welcome to TripCast 360. We are the podcast of lively banter about travel, lifestyle, and entertainment. I am your host, Michael Gordon-Bennett, and I am joined by my dear friend and co-host, Dave Cumberbatch, out on Long Island. Davey, what's going on, man? Well, tell you what's going on. Um, uh, <laughs> I don't know if this is sad news or good news. NBC was reporting that the clean energy program is likely to be dropped from the reconciliation bill. NBC is saying the decision is not final yet, but I don't know. It looks looks pretty grim. I'm trying not to be political here, but I think I am going to have to risk it <laughs> because of the subject matter of today's show. When in the hell are we going to stop denying what's clearly right in front of our faces just to make a profit? Not to mention the fact that the wildfires, the floods, the storms you guys have had up and down the eastern seaboard for the last couple of years, the Amazon rainforest burning to the ground several times over. I mean, it almost seems that it almost seems that no one's considering the impact that it has on on our global economies. I think they. I think they get it, but they're trying to protect the status quo. They're not looking ahead. It's like, I've got to do what I can do now. My kids go worry about the planet later on down the road. And they don't seem to care. And this country has never acted like this before. But this has been going on for, what, 30 years now, the climate denial. And it's always like, you know, the, the losers in the battle for the public opinion are the ones who are on the right side of what's really happening. And I've never understood this this um, notion. I may, maybe it's me. Maybe it's because I'm. You know, I read a book every once in a while. But we were taught science in school, basic science. And if you don't believe basic science, at least believe your eyes. <laughs> I mean, these wildfires. You know. I mean, you know. Obviously, you know. I spent most of half my adult life in California. Those wildfires are no joke, and they've gotten worse. I've been here in Las Vegas for ten years now. And I have noticed every summer the temperature creeping up one or two degrees every summer since I've been here. When I first got here in 2010 to take care of my mother, it was like high temperature in Las Vegas, maybe get to 105, 106 in the middle of the summer. The highest temperature ever recorded here in Las Vegas is 117. We've had four days this year of 117 alone and no rain. I'll imagine that Death Valley is probably about 120. Oh, Death Valley's worse. Uh, last year, I think Death Valley set a record at 136. Ooh. I mean, think just think about and no rain. I Las Vegas has had Las Vegas averages about three inches of rain for an entire calendar year. We haven't had three inches of rain in the last five years. Think, think about that. You 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 know, I, I know that the, the vice president was here a couple of weeks back. And she was out at Lake Mead looking at the water levels from Lake Mead. It's down like 140 feet. If you're flying in um, on an airplane from any city uh, coming east to west uh, and you look, if you can know where Lake Mead is out the window, you can look down and you can see where the water table used to be because it's bleached the rock where the water was before and where it is now. And you can tell even from 2,000 feet in the air how far down that water level's dropped. And when you compound that with the fact that uh, most of the drinking water for anything south of the Colorado Rockies comes through here. The farming in Southern California, they actually have water rationing in Tucson, Arizona right now because there's no water to make me for them to drink. Yeah. So 
Yeah, I mean, we all can right. go on. We can go on about this all day. I, I don't want to get off on it. Well, we're going to get off on a tangent anyway because the subject of today's show. But um, we'll we'll let our guests help me with my tangent ranting here. Anyway, uh, Tripcast three hundred and sixty podcast is available anywhere you get your podcasts: uh, iHeartRadio, Apple, uh, iTunes, uh, Google, Spotify. You name it, we're there. But the best place to always catch it is on our website at tripcast three hundred and sixty dot com. We post a new episode, Holidays Excluded, every single Monday. So uh, sit back, relax, enjoy, invite your friends, family, loved ones, anybody who wants to follow us. And if you have any suggestions for a story idea, uh, if it has some sort of tangential relationship to travel, we are all ears. You can just send us an email at contact at tripcast360.com, and we will certainly get it on the show. And as I mentioned, other ways of contacting us, Dave has a few more. Let it rip, Dave. And Michael, you know, we love our social media friends and want to keep them up to date on all the great things that are happening at Pitcast 360. So we're excited to announce that in addition to our friendly website, tripcast360.com, you know, we have profiles on Facebook, on Instagram, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and soon YouTube. Um, at Tripcast 360, we share information and updates regularly including photos, videos, travel news, and much more. So take a moment and visit our pages. Once you're there, just like us, follow us, and tag us. And we look forward to bringing you tons of great information and connecting with you. We encourage you to comment, share on our posts, as well as feel free to, to let your friends know we exist. It's exciting. Good news. Yep. And uh, by the way, if you don't want to have fun, don't listen to our show. We want you to laugh. Too many travel podcasts are boring travel logs. We don't do that. We we laugh. And, um, you know, laughter is, is allowed with us. So uh, bring your stories. So anyway, let me jump into today's show and get Marissa Principe is a New York-based travel writer who got the itch for travel, she says, around birth. We're going to investigate that a little bit, Marissa. Um, after living in Germany for three years, teaching preschool on an army base, the desire to uh, travel turned into a passion. She returned to the U.S. and landed a job uh, travel and lifestyle writing for CBS, and she has never looked back. Uh, mm. As a matter of fact, her bio of places she's been is so long, I can't begin to read them all. So what we're going to do is have Marissa come back about a thousand times to go through everything, every place she's been and where she wants to go. That's her web right. There you go. Her website is citygirlriss, that's R-I-S-S dot com. It's more than a travel platform. She writes about beauty, style, and so much more. But today, Marissa is actually with us to discuss a passion that we all share, and that's eco travel and sustainable tourism. Marissa, what's going on? Hi. Well, thank you so much for having me on the podcast and obviously for allowing me to talk about sustainability because I could literally talk about this all day, all week, all month, all year. So, so my oh. rant so my rant at the top of the show didn't offend you. No, I was nodding my head the entire time. Fantastic. During our discussions about choosing a topic for our podcast today, you express your passion for the environment. Mm -hmm. And so we chose to discuss the subject matter that Michael just spoke about, ecotourism sustainability. Mm -hmm. uh, it's been described as a form of tourism involving responsible travel to natural areas, uh, conserving the environment and improving the well-being of the local people. Mm -hmm. Ecotourism focuses on 
socially responsible travel, personal growth, and environmental sustainability. Uh, in your experience in traveling and seeing this around the globe, to you, what is sustainable ecotourism? So it's hard to kind of pinpoint it to one definition, if you will. I think mm -hmm. it has many meanings, but overall, I like to say that essentially it's leaving a place better than when you found it, mm -hmm. or at least the same it was at the very least. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so, mm -hmm. you know, as we travel and, um, you know, we leave big footprints, whether that's a big carbon footprint from taking airplanes, or maybe it's something as simple as, you know, bringing a to-go box to the beach. You know, it has many meanings of what you can do um, as a traveler to be an eco-conscious traveler. So, like I said, it has many names, it has many definitions, but some of the things that I'm personally passionate about is, you know, what are little things that you can do at home? Um, that you can do to prepare for a trip, or maybe once you get to a destination, maybe instead of um, buying that to-go coffee, maybe you bring a reusable thermal, you know, or maybe it's something as simple as, see, you got one. <laughs> maybe it's something as simple as, you know, when you go to the beach, when you see garbage or litter or um, any type of plastic, you pick it up and you take it with you and discard of it on your way out. So all those kind of things all kind of lend into being a sustainable travel traveler, quote unquote. Mm -hmm. um, but I would say, you know, it's also in the hotels you stay at on a much larger scale. It's, it's the tours you support. It's the um, community givebacks with the hotels you're staying at, the, the tour guides, everything, you know, it's all um, we like to say a closed loop system. So everybody mm -hmm. kind of helps everybody and we all work together to kind of make, the world a better place, if you will. In one of your articles I read, I think it's the one titled Stunning Landscapes, Wildlife and Adventure. Mm -hmm. You said that for the longest time you thought uh, you thought that great adventures, dangerous tales from the trail, exciting expeditions mm -hmm. could only be found in exotic countries. When did you realize that some of those things you can actually find here in the United States as well? Yeah, so I think like anyone, I was I've always been seduced, if you will, by the the romanticism of Europe and you know the plains of Africa. And so, you know, I was always like, I want to get as far away from America, you know, I want to be immersed in somebody else's culture. I want to see, you know, architecture that's older than anything you could find in America, big mountains, so on and so forth. You know, the list goes on. And I will say, um, you know, when I lived in Germany for three years, I did a lot of traveling around Europe. Um, luckily for me at the time, <laughs> you know, I could get a 30 euro Ryanair flight to London. So I would kind of just take, um, we would get long weekends in the military for training. So basically like Thursday to Monday, and we would maybe train once a year. So we would get those long weekends and I would take them and I would visit a new country. So, you know, for me, it was about exploring all these different places. And then once I moved back to the United States, I realized there was so much I missed about the U S and, you know, when you're away for a while, you miss little things. Um, you know, you miss the, the local bodega that's on the corner of your street. <laughs> 
you know, um, just like little, little things that you've grown to love that you might not have even realized until you left. So I think once I came back to the States, um, I was like, you know, I bet you, we have so many great cities and so many great, um, landscapes and I've maybe just overlooked them and not appreciated them. So one of my first trips back was to Alaska. And I think if you've ever been to Alaska, you get off the plane and you're just, wow. Yeah. Can't believe this place exists in America. You know, they call it the last frontier state. Um, and it's just beautiful. It's absolutely wild in the best way. Um, and the nature is just over the top. And it's quiet. Yes. <laughs> Did you notice when I was in Alaska, the first thing that struck me after I got my eyes adjusted to the just sheer natural beauty was mm. quiet. I mean, I don't know which one of you has the uh, cars riding outside of your house right now with the horns beating. I'm guessing it's you, Marissa. <laughs> but when you go to Alaska, you hear none of that. Yeah. I mean, it is absolutely. I, I went on a whale watching tour uh, on a on a smaller boat. And the humpback whales were in doing their thing and getting stocked up before they made their trek to Hawaii for the summer. And a, and a whale came up and slapped his fin about eh, maybe a quarter mile away from our boat. Wow. That was the most awesome thing I had ever seen in my life. <laughs> so, it, I mean, it was that close in the ripple effect of the water. It was almost like the whale was waving at us as he hit slapped that water that hard. but. You can hear the slap echoing from the out from the water through the tree because there's just nothing out there. Yeah. It's How far was that veil away from your boat, Michael? I'm guessing a quarter of a mile. Wow. And you could actually feel that. Oh, yeah. We felt it. Yeah. It, 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 I mean, the, the fin was the length of our entire boat. If that thing had come up and slapped us any closer, we'd all been in the water with it. But that. Really? Uh, I mean, it was funny because they had a spotter on top of binoculars because, you know, when they come up for air, they come up like every 10 minutes for air. So we were looking for their blowholes. Well, the, the captain missed the blowhole of the one that was right near us because they was looking out in the distance and forgot the one that was right there. And in Alaska, they're actually trained to stay away from the whales to give them their space to let them do their thing. But this one snuck up on us, I guess, and he just missed it. Wow, that's incredible. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, yeah. The, same. I, I, the same thing happened to you. Yeah. Um, but to be fair, I had an I had an inside friend who was a captain. <laughs> so. Oh, see now, now see how you are. I had to pay for my trip. <laughs> I, I had to pay for my trip. I actually want to go back and touch on something, and I'm going to connect in a few minutes. I'm actually going to connect eco and sustainable tourism to the travel industry. But on a on a macro level. I remember all the stories about 10 or 15 years ago where the cruise ship industry, and I'm not picking any one cruise line, just in general, they were polluting our waters by sometimes discharging their sludge into the oceans and stuff like that. But it seems like they've gotten a handle on that of late. Has the, in, in what you've seen so far, does it appear like the industry is actually starting to get with the program to fix and or improve upon some of the sustainability uh of tourism and their environment as it pertains to travel? Absolutely. I mean, more and more we're seeing, um, you know, more people support their eco tours, more people, more hotels um, supporting, you know, like turn off the lights when you leave, you know, all those little signs are starting to pop up in your hotel room, if you've noticed. Yes. Um, but everyone's trying to do their part. 
And I think part of that is, you know, more people are becoming educated. And obviously, with the growing concern of climate change, more people are like, yeah, you know, what's something we could do? It's it's a discussion at the table now. Um, but I will say we do get a lot of greenwashing with that being said. Um, you know, one of the quote unquote negative aspects is when something becomes so popular, it becomes trendy. And sometimes people jump on the trend and don't necessarily, you know, have the cash to back it up or what's the saying? Don't write a check you cash. Yeah, I have another way of saying that, but okay, <laughs> you were being polite. <laughs> Don't write a check with your mouth that your hindquarters can't cash. <laughs> there we go. There we go. go. <laughs> yeah, but it's not only just in, in tourism too. It's in fashion. You know, it's 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 everywhere. People are um, brands are jumping on this trend because they know that consumers are are searching this. They're looking for it. They're looking for solutions. Um, and again, that's kind of where my job comes in as a journalist, where I'm like, you know, okay, this is what we could do better. This is what, this is the goal. This is where we need to be. And, um, you know, I definitely do see a lot of hotels, even with something just as simple as sunscreen, you know, we see a lot of hotels starting to use, um, reef safe sunscreen, which is that it's still a gray area. There's still a lot of debate on sunscreens, but, you know, at least people are paying attention to it. And at a very basic level, you know, um, people are, are trying to do their part, even if it's something as small as that, for example. Mm-hmm. But to touch on what you were saying is actually we're seeing now a lot of, um, I would say, I would call them boutique cruise companies that are, that are popping up um, using more sustainably friendly boats. So boats that don't use as much engine power and that rely more on, on wind. And so we're seeing a lot of sailboats, um, even in the Caribbean, I have a friend, um, savvy sailing who has a, um, traditional Caribbean boat. I, the, the name is escaping me. You might be able to speak David, (laughs) (laughs) but it's a traditional wooden boat. And basically it runs predominantly on, uh, wind power and traditional sailing. And so, you know, the great thing about sustainability, it's also tied into um, cultural and kind of getting back to the way we used to do things, whether that's farm to table, um, whether that's a traditional wooden sailing boat and so on and so forth. Yeah, I, I think those wooden boats, I know in, in Croatia, they call them gullets. I don't know what they call them in the Caribbean. Uh, I'd have to double check. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I think we call them wooden boats in the Caribbean. <laughs> <laughs> that original old name. Yeah. Yeah. Keep, keep it, keep it simple, stupid. Okay. I, I got you. Um, in, in all of your global travels and, uh, do you notice some places that are actually doing a better job of it than others? And what are some of the good places? And by, you know, let me preface this by saying what you're about to tell us is not all inclusive. It's just some of the places you've been. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just to um, kind of put a broader scale, I would maybe point out there's a few countries who I think are really doing exceptionally well. Um, I know you guys had mentioned you had someone, I believe, speak about Costa Rica. Yeah. Costa Rica is doing a great job with sustainable tourism. Um, I'm actually doing a travel, a sustainable travel summit in Colombia. Uh, in a couple weeks going down there because they're also promoting sustainability and um, they have a beautiful rainforest down there. 
Um, and some of the other places I've been to Iceland, Iceland does okay. a great job. Um, you know, they've been battling over tourism actually, which is that's scary. One of, yeah. One of the other negative side effects about traveling, travel writing, and, and again, things becoming kind of trendy is when you get so many people, you know, it, it's harder to kind of keep the integrity. Sometimes it's not only just limited to nature, but it can even be architecture, you know, Machu Picchu. Um, they had to close, close off Hawaiian Picchu for a while, uh, because there was too many tourism, too many feet. And then fortunately the trails and, and the stones kind of worn down. So, uh, again, there's, there's so many broad categories when we talk about sustainability. Um, but I do think, yeah, Costa Rica is doing great. Iceland is doing great. Um, I think even Thailand and Bali are doing their part to kind of, um, again, try and combat over tourism. Um, and even, even places like Europe and, and Switzerland, and I can obviously talk about Germany specifically, right. You know, ecotourism and, and the environment is so important to them. Um, and in Germany, you know, I always, people always laugh, but I say we have bridges for wildlife, you know? So over main highways, every now and then there are wildlife bridges that are just grass and yep. they're designed just so that, um, you know, the animals and, um, can cross over the highway safely. We, we by the way, I don't know if you are, are familiar with this. We actually have that in Los Angeles in the, uh, Santa Monica mountains. They have mm -hmm. actually built uh, uh, grass ways over the freeways. As you know, LA's got more freeways than I can count, but they actually have them so that the mountain lions can continue their trek across the uh, freeways without having to run into the middle of city traffic. So we we do have some of that. Yeah, and I think Colorado too just put one in recently. Yeah, yeah they did. Yep. Mm -hmm. So the yeah, uh, so those things are actually good. And they, I know you asked a question a couple of weeks back, Dave, about uh, somebody who was. Uh, trying to prevent over tourism, I think I was it Costa Rica that you asked the lady about over tourism. Yes, it was Costa Rica. Yeah, because over tourism actually concerns me um, a lot, uh, actually, because I think as the world begins to discover the angle on sustainability, um, they're going to look for places like Iceland. They're going to look for places like Costa Rica, and they're going to over overpopulate it. But the question Dave asked about Costa Rica was specifically related to Americans and Canadians in particular, and expats actually moving to Costa Rica and mm -hmm. staying there. And then that footprint just affects the tourism plays and affects the living because Costa, I've been to Costa Rica and it's gorgeous. I'm looking at buying my own property there, but I don't want to contribute to the over-tourism of the area either because that comes with a whole host of other problems. But then you should move to the Galapagos Island. <laughs> oh, they, they would love, they, they would love me. I'd get my little orange booties on my feet and, you know, those, those little crabs that I saw Catherine sitting next to, they'd be all over me. Yeah. Before we dive deeper in this part of the conversation, mm -hmm. we sort of lump ecotourism and sustainability in one phrase. What are the distinct differences between sustainability and ecotourism is one a subset of the other i mean i guess they both have their own attributes and um and they do get lumped together often because i feel like they kind of go hand in hand so it's hard to talk about ecotourism without talking about sustainability because at the end of the day 
um, you know, what is eco-friendly, what is eco-travel. And like I mentioned and touched upon earlier, it's kind of that notion of, okay, when you visit a destination, it's about leaving it better than you found it. And so, you know, when we talk about sustainability, really um, the key word in there is sustain. So it's kind of how do we sustain these eco-friendly practices? And that's a whole bigger picture, right? Because, you know, um, even when we talk about single-use plastic, you know, well, what's the answer to single-use plastic? And it's to use something that's maybe a little more durable that you can reuse. So maybe instead of bringing a plastic cup to a picnic, you bring a set of washable plastic cups. And every time you have a picnic, you reuse those plastic cups. But at the end of the day, those plastic cups are still plastic cups. So you are reusing the plastic, but you know, over time, plastic is actually not as durable as we think. And over time, it starts to break down. Right. And probably the biggest issue with the plastic industry in the entire world is microplastics because all things break down into microplastics. So um, a lot of people don't even realize there is plastic in your clothes. If you're not wearing 100% cotton, you have plastic in your clothes. Every time you wash your clothes, that plastic is going into the sewer systems, which usually finds its way into the ocean. So, of course, when it comes to fashion, beauty, lifestyle, home decor, you know, everything kind of leads back to sustainability. And so, again, when we talk about ecotourism and the issues surrounding um, over-tourism and, and kind of overcrowding, you know, we start to bring up these issues of, you know, like I mentioned in Machu Picchu, closing it down for a year to kind of do this maintenance where you can, um, you know, rebuild stones and rebuild trails. And, you know, even in national parks, over time, national parks have to go through and uh, maintain the trails and of course, like inclement weather and storms, you know, will will change things up. But even foot traffic, foot traffic plays a lot into um, kind of some of the problems that we're seeing, not only at national parks, but at these monuments that we've all known to grow and love and, of course, have seen on Instagram. Right. It, it's funny because it sounds like analogous to farmers who have to do crop rotations every so many years because certain nutrients are being leached out of the soil that they can't grow a certain crop with. Yes, absolutely. It sounds like the same thing. Yeah. And when you think about that too, um, you know, one of my biggest passions is the ocean. And so, you know, touching back on that sunscreen, um, you know, the harmful chemicals in sunscreen, which are things like um, oxybenzone, um, we found through science, it's harmful to corals. And so basically when a coral reproduces, it releases um, kind of like little eggs into the water. And basically this chemical makes those eggs grow 10 times faster than they normally would. And so the coral can't actually sustain that rate of growth. And so what happens is these reefs aren't being able to rebuild themselves. They're not being able to repopulate. And then of course, you know, when it comes to coral reefs, we talk about, um, Death by a thousand cuts is kind of what every scientist I've talked to has mentioned, where it's not just one problem. It's, you know, 10 of these problems that are causing the failure of reefs and these diverse ecosystems all over the world. Right. How do we 
this is a this is a loaded this is a loaded question, by the way. Uh, how do we come up with messaging that resonates with the vast majority of the population? I'm talking about those who are open minded enough to know that what's happening is happening because there's some who just closed off to reality. But how do we message it to make it simple without being overly scientific? Because while Dave and I both understood what you just explained, I'd be willing to bet that there's a significant part of the population that doesn't quite understand uh, what you just said to us in terms of like the breaking down of the uh, sunscreen and stuff like that. You can tell it didn't work on Dave and I, by the way, but, you know, breaking down the sunscreen <laughs> and stuff. But, um, you know, the, the, messaging is so crucial in this day and age. Simple messaging, you know, five words or less. I, I don't know what you learned in journalism school, but I remember, you know, they told us that you have to repeat something so many times before it actually starts to stick in somebody's head. How do we simplify the message so that they get it? Well, I think that's the million dollar question, right? That's right. what everyone to do. And unfortunately, um, it's really not that easy. I mean, as a journalist and a lover of words and a lover of science, you know, I could talk to the cows come home about sustainability and why you should choose reef safe sunscreen and so on and so forth. Um, but you'd be surprised how, how far, um, an image goes. And when we talk about sustainability, one of the examples I use is everyone's seen the video of the turtle with the straw stuck in his nose. Mm. Have you seen it? Do you know what I'm talking? Yes. I know exactly what you're talking about. Everyone's seen this video. So actually in New York state, I mean, and at a very smaller level, Long Island and New York city, um, you can't use plastic straws anymore. There are quote unquote illegal, like contraband. Um, it's not really as strict in New York city, but in Suffolk County, Long Island, it is very strict. You cannot find plastic straw to save your life there. And so you know, as we kind of like go through this journey, you know, what's the next alternative and the next alternative is paper straws. But of course, anyone who's had a paper straw, you know, there's, there's a short life expectancy on a paper straw. Like you've got about 30 minutes to drink your drink before it starts to (laughs) disintegrate. So what we're seeing now is we're actually seeing, um, you know, great engineering and ingenuity. So because all these rules have been set in place, what we're kind of seeing now is like a boom and, and like I said, great engineering. And so in Long Island now, we're starting to see more agave straws, which are made from mm-hmm. the um, agave plant. And it's actually a harder straw and it's pretty similar to plastic, except um, over time as it disintegrates, which it, it actually is pretty durable, but what's really disintegrating into your drink is just sugar. So if anything, it's making your drink better as the night goes on. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Justify that one, will you? <laughs> you know, as we kind of navigate through this, there's really no great solution to how can we change the messaging. But I think that the images and kind of seeing um, these are the repercussions of our actions. You know, like it's easy to say, like, yeah, you should use reef sunscreen, but until you've gone to a healthy reef. And I've come back five years later and seen it completely destroyed. Are you like, oh, this is a big problem. This episode of TripCast 360 is sponsored by David's Cruise Vacation, a travel agency that specializes in both land and sea adventures for the intrepid traveler. Book now at davidscruisevacations.com and experience that hands-on personal service. Michael mentioned about the 
the situation in terms of the farmers uh, a little while ago. Mm-hmm. How do you balance, where do you put sustainability in terms of, of the forest fires, where you have to do controlled burn? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a whole other issue. And to be honest, I don't even really know if I could speak to it quite as much. Um, I started my own quarantine garden and that's the extent of my, my farming knowledge other than in terms of like factory farms and, and, you know, that whole cycle of, or chain of events, if you will. Um, But I mean, in terms of like controlled burning and, you know, I always say I'm I'm also kind of as much of a environmental warrior, if you will, as I am, I always kind of say, you know, there has to be a compromise. There kind of has to be a middle ground until we can get to um, the quote unquote perfect ideal. And of course that's always changing too, but (laughs) um, you know, so what I always say, obviously hunting um, when we talk about sustainable travel in Africa, that is a huge huge topic because it brings in so much tourism. Like when you hear the numbers of of how many people actually, you know, pay to hunt a lion and to spend the money to fly to Africa, stay at the the lodge and and how much they pay to hunt an elephant or a lion, it's astronomical, you know, where I I was shocked. Certainly I was like, you know, I've never wanted to hurt an animal in my life, let alone pay thousands and thousands of dollars to do so. And obviously hunting's not my thing, probably will never be my thing. Um, but there are people out there who enjoy it. And so when we talk about sustainability, we talk about, okay, well, how do we compromise? You know, how do we, how do we meet in the middle here? Because as much as I'm like, yeah, I'll never hunt on the opposite side of that. There's people who are like, well, where do you get your food from? You know, um, all I do is hunt and so on and so forth. Yeah, but what, but, but what you just described is two different forms of hunting. One hunting is sustainable so we can eat. The other hunting seems to be nothing more than sport. What's going right. on in Africa and what you described is nothing more than sport. And it's like a bunch of rich, spoiled people got nothing better to do with their lives than go spend millions of dollars going out and hunting game, which they shouldn't be hunting in the first place. Right. Yeah, so I completely agree with you. I'm also in this mindset. But one of the things that they are doing in the hunting industry is now is so let's say quote unquote rich spoiled person comes and they they kill a giraffe they don't actually want the meat from the giraffe they just want to stuff the giraffe get a taxidermy maybe or they just want a photo right so what these hunting companies are doing is they take the meat from the giraffe and they give it to the local village okay and so that's kind of been a way we've been able to compromise on sustainability Um, You know, there's also now kind of become this, if you will, for lack of a better term, farm culture where people are just raising lions and, you know, rhinos for hunting. And then part of that, that, that farming culture is they have to donate a huge amount to conservation. So it's going to the national parks, allegedly, by the way, but yeah, I got you. (laughs) But if they're doing it right, it's going to conservation. And so that those are kind of the ways where I say, you know, it can't always be on one side. So for me, sometimes I kind of lie in the middle of these issues where I'm like, okay, well, how do we work together? How do we close the circle? So at least we have something that's 
maybe a little bit better. And so one of the biggest stories that was going on in South Africa and it has been going on is about rhinos, saving rhinos. So white rhinos are, at least the males are extinct. So Mm. there's only females left. And of course, you know, we're trying to do a little Jurassic Park, a little engineering, (laughs) and we're trying to restart the population that way, which is, you know, it's, that's a whole other can of worms that we could do. A little dicey. (laughs) (laughs) But, you know, um, so what's interesting, and I think what's fascinating that I learned about rhinos is that rhino horns are actually made from keratin. And so keratin is what your fingernails are made of. Yeah. Hair's made of. Um, so what happens when you cut your fingernails or you cut your hair? It grows yep. back. It grows back. So what's so interesting to me is that when many people take a rhino's horn, you know, obviously through the process, they end up killing a rhino. And it's so interesting because if you were to just cut the rhino horn off, it would grow back. But of course, I don't know about you, but I would not want to go toe to toe with a rhino to try and cut it. <laughs> uh, no, I don't care how much tranquilizer you put in it. No. Right. And that's the other issue is tranquilizer is very expensive. So, um, you know, the, the rhino trade industry, the horn industry um, was legal for many years. And of course, um, people got up in arms about it and they said, no, we want it to be illegal. And the country and South Africa said, okay, so they made rhino horns illegal. And unfortunately, the negative side effect of that is was illegal poaching, um, you know, doubled 10 times right. of what it was. Because now it was free game. Now you could cut down any rhino you wanted and you can grab it. And you were the only source of contact because you didn't have to compete with people who were doing it legally. So this man started a rhino farm where he tranquilizes the rhinos and he cuts off the horn and he convinced the government to make it legal again. And so, of course, he himself has a lot of problems with illegal poaching on his farm. Um, But, you know, that's kind of been the answer is to let's do it. Let's make it legal, but let's do it in a sustainable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know what scares me about this entire conversation is. We're at the tipping point now. We're not at the tipping point 10 years from now or 20 years from now. The next decade, what we do with sustainable everything, not just tourism, is going to affect the planet forever. And we just seem like we have so many people. It's like if it's not right in your face, blatant, upfront, happening to me right now, we don't react to it. And I, I mean, I know that you know we've had the Paris Climate Accords and all this other stuff. But these guys are acting like they got 25 years to start making these changes. These changes should have happened 25 years ago. Absolutely, yeah. And, and we're just sitting around ha- acting like we have all day, and we don't. And I don't, I don't know what we have to do. And, I, and I'm not picking on just America. This is a global issue in some countries as well that has turned political. I don't know what cattle prod we have to stick up some of these people. You know what to get these people to move a little quicker. They don't. It's like they they. It's like they understand the science behind it, but they don't they seem powerless to do anything to get it moving. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I, I just uh, I don't know. I, I just back on my rant. I'm sorry. I shouldn't go there. Um, <laughs> but I, something else you said interesting. And Dave and I had a guest on our show from Bonaire. Actually, it was Catherine a couple of weeks ago. And she was talking about um, 
the fact that when you go diving there, for example, they actually charge a fee for diving so they can take that money and reinvest it into maintaining the, the dive sites and the reefs offshore and even on land where they do the on-land hiking. How many do you know of a lot of places around the world that are doing stuff similar to that? So I'm starting to see it more and more. Um, and personally, I think it's a great idea. So same thing, the Philippines, anytime you want to snorkel or dive in, um, let's say like the coral gardens, for example, you have to pay, um, it's a small fee, but you know, it's, it's similar to if you go to a national park in the U S too, you know, you pay a fee to go into the national park and all that goes into maintaining the park. It goes to keeping, um, you know, kind of everything intact, whether that's fences or trails and and so on and so forth. So I think it's a great idea. And I hope more places um, eventually will adopt that. I think where it's really new and groundbreaking is in the ocean. Because, you know, even when it comes to law, anything goes in the ocean, you know? So it's, um, I think people are starting to look at it now as not only something to protect, but also something um, where they're like, okay, yeah, if you go to the special area, this is now a national park, this is, you know, there's no illegal fishing and, you know, kind of the conservation going into whether that's scientific research with marine biologists or whether that's, um, you know, something as simple as just starting kind of like what a national park fund would be. Right. See that, that, that's your next profession, by the way, marine biologist. (laughs) So when people ask about, you know, how did you get so passionate about sustainability? I actually started a marine biology club in high school. A biology teacher was like, well, we need 14 kids. And so I went around and I convinced everyone. I was like, this is going to be the coolest club. You got to come. And so what we actually did was we grew clams. Um, which clams, oysters, all those kind of um, shellfish are actually great for filtering water um, and cleaning cleaning the ocean. And so basically we grew these clams and once they became young teenagers, we put them back in the ocean and um, in the Great South Bay over in Long Island. And what my classmates didn't know was that after we build these rafts, so we grew them from babies to young adults, and we kind of put the rafts float in the water so they can filter it and get food. And uh, it's kind of in a cage so that they can't get eaten. And so we had to clean these rafts um, every other day in the summer. Oh, wow. <laughs> so, so I was like, oh, you thought you were off this summer? No. No. We're <laughs> <laughs> to take care of our children. We are new parents and we got to make sure we see them till they're teenagers. And then once they're 18, they're off on their own. <laughs> <laughs> So the club didn't last long once I graduated. I but. kind of figured that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, that's kind of how I, um, that's kind of how it all got started. Um, I mean, I've contributed enough to the American education system in terms of student loans. So <laughs> oh, yeah, journalism is, it, it suffices. Thanks so much of what happens today is, ba- is based on the green dollar. Mm-hmm. Uh, how how do we make sustainability economically um, palatable to some of these places that uh, they're looking for that green dollar? Just 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 to make it simple. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's also 
question of the year, right? Is, you know, even when we talk about something as simple as farming, how do we make vegetables more affordable? How do we make organic food more affordable, um, especially to communities and, and neighborhoods that really need, um, you know, to basic level, you know, food is medicine. And mm-hmm. so that's kind of a question we always talk about when we talk about farming, food, sustainability, um, you know, some of the things when it, when we're visiting countries that, um, that really depend on tourism and maybe that don't have access to resources or even something as simple education. You know, there are some countries who grew up for years and years and years, just taking the food, like a banana peel, for example, and throwing it right. Throwing it on the floor because it'll compost, but fast forward to modern day. And now you have a water bottle. And so that habit is still there to throw that water bottle. Um, But unfortunately, that water bottle is not going to break down like a banana peel would. And so part of that is through education. And, you know, there are government programs, as far as the eye can see, that are all kind of working on, on educating communities. But for me, on my level, um, personally, it's about kind of writing about, um, you know, family owned businesses, because you'd be surprised. These are people um, who have lived in this country for years. And the generational history goes back even, they're even older than America, you know, like traditions. And so um, when we talk about that, it's about, you know, so-and-so that, for example, I'm currently in the process of booking a trip to Panama and this woman owns a small island uh, off the coast of Panama and she has these eco bungalows. So kind of like the Maldives, they're these beautiful bungalows, like right off of Sandbake, it's a private Island. And she rescues monkeys from central and South America. So she's created this monkey reserve. And part of being an eco and sustainable hotel is that she, um, partners with an indigenous tribe. So a local tribe, and they actually do, they facilitate all the tours. So they kind of work together where, um, you know, in addition to supporting their, their lifestyle so they can afford modern amenities and, and so on and so forth. Um, they lead a, a sloth tour, for example, where they take you on a canoe through the, the forest and you kind of look for wildlife and sloths and, and, and bird life. And so kind of that, that inclusion. And so for me, when I write about hotels or, Um, when I'm writing about a sustainable destination, you know, those are kind of the things I look for. And that's kind of my job of educating people and saying, you know, well, if you're going to go with a tour company, you know, how, how did this tour come about? Are they working with local people? You know, at the end of the day, that's also um, giving back to the community because you are putting money into the pockets of people who live there, have lived there, and probably will live there for generations to come. So again, it goes back to that closed circle of, you know, everybody needs to help everyone. And how can we all work together to kind of, you know, meet in the middle um, to, again, kind of promote tourism in not only a sustainable way, but, you know, you're getting an authentic experience. And so those are actually the kind of tours I prefer because you know, when I ask someone a question and obviously as a journalist, I ask a lot of questions. Um, 
<laughs> but you know, you're getting that, uh, you're getting the firsthand interview, if you will, because they know so much about the place that they've lived for years. I mean, oil is the number one biggest pollutant in the world. Right. Um, so obviously it's a growing concern everywhere. And unfortunately it's a fossil fuel. And I think people kind of have this conceived notion that it's never going to run out and we're always going to have this infinite supply. And I think the science is saying, we don't think that's true. So only time will really answer that question, unfortunately. Um, But yeah, I think as we move forward, again, engineering here to save the day, we are kind of seeing that these, these great strides and different uses in wind energy and solar energy, especially. And so, I mean, it does take a lot of convincing and a lot of messaging, a lot of marketing, but um, there are some countries out there who are doing it and, you know, they're doing great. And again, Germany, because I lived there for three years, um, we're mostly solar. We use tons of wind energy. And so it's really working there. And I think slowly countries are starting to um, make the switch in terms of energy, but on a very basic level, when you talk about overall economy, you talk about switching from oil to tourism, you know, that is one of the things that, I mean, there's pros and cons to every system, of course. Uh, but I think when people see not only, I like to think how much joy it spreads, you know, I mean, who doesn't love to travel? especially in a place like Aruba, who doesn't love to be on the beach, Um, you know, and there's still pros and and especially cons that go with, you know, switching to tourism. But I will say, um, you know, people follow the money and when there's money to be made and there's certainly a better option to make that money, you know, sometimes it does kind of take like leading the camel to water. It takes a while to get there, but once they see the water, they're like, oh yeah, I'll, I'll take a sip of that. Yeah. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll drink a little. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Because I think Dave's last two questions all point to economics. And I had a friend of mine uh, in Palm Springs. He just put solar panels on his house just in the last two months. And he put his first bill up online so we can all see. And his bill was $5 and four cents because he was able to sell all that electricity back to the grid and save himself. And one of the criticisms of some of the people in his feed was that, oh, you got to replace those things in every four or five years. And, and uh, you know, that's going to offset the savings in the electric bill. And I'm like, that doesn't sound right to me. What, did, what was your experience? And I know you're not, wasn't, you know, putting up solar panels on people's houses in Germany, but what was the German experience like with solar? So um, solar's everywhere. They actually have entire farms dedicated to just solar panel, uh, which is basically just like a field of solar panels. I'm sure you've seen them. Yeah, well, like, we've, we've got those here. Yeah, we've, as far as the eye can see. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think what what's scary and what people, <laughs> I should say what's scary to a lot of these bigger corporations and companies is when you realize if everyone had solar energy, we could we could all share. We'd have enough for the world. We could light up countries who've never even had lights in their home, you know, for since since the the beginning of civilization. You know right. what I'm saying? And so, 
Um, same thing with internet. You know, there are countries where internet is free in the entire country and everything kind of comes through uh, this one internet, like Taiwan, for example. And so, um, I mean, yeah, that's, I can say in Germany, uh, they rely a lot on solar energy and, you know, on the sunny days, they, they make extra. And so it's kind of similar to New York. So when it's cloudy and when it's winter, um, they can use the backup from summer. And so mm-hmm. my parents, um, bless their heart. I was in the sixth grade and I was like, we need solar panels. Like this is the future. Like this is sustainable after I got, we, we did like an environmental assembly and I will say my parents bless their heart. They humor me. And they were actually the first, uh, house in our neighborhood to put up solar panels. And then, um, slowly over time, you know, we started seeing more houses in just my small neighborhood of North Babylon in Long Island, more houses over time started to put up more and more. And that's also has to do with government and policies. And, you know, again, it's not perfect. Now, of course, LIPA is trying to say, you know, we're going to charge you a fee for, you know, the solar energy and to come breed it and all that stuff. But it's right. getting better. So it's hopeful. I now, I now love your parents, by the way. Um, <laughs> in the few minutes that we have left, I'm going to make a pivot back to a question Dave asked you uh, at the top. And that was when you came back to the United States and you discovered a whole bunch of places you never knew were here. That uh, What were some of those places that you discovered other than Alaska? I mean, I, I think it's fascinating because America is a humongous country when it comes to uh, geographic diversity and yeah. cultural diversity. And sometimes we don't even know what we have in our own backyard. What did you discover besides Long Island? Yeah. So in addition to um, Alaska, I think um, Jackson Hole, I mean, Yellowstone National Park, that's kind of where it all started in terms of national parks. It was the very first one. Um, the Grand Tetons, which are right next to it, which right I asked Um, and then even something as simple as going to Florida, um, actually the, there's a lot of beautiful natural springs in Florida. And I grew up, I had an uncle who lived in Tampa. I grew up going to Wikiwachi, which was uh, a water theme park, but in a natural spring. And, um, when I came back, I spent a lot of time in the Palm beach area and Jupiter and kind of just going up and down those inlets and um, they don't necessarily have the natural springs, but I saw a lot of manatees and they come right up to your paddleboard. And, you know, sometimes you get off the paddleboard and you swim and all of a sudden you turn around and there's a manatee and they're heavily protected in Florida. So anyone who's listening to this, please don't touch them. Right. <laughs> but so, um, yeah, just kind of realizing not only in terms of like uh, natural beauty, but then going to, um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, and kind of seeing, you know, like, wow, this place has been around much longer than America. And mm-hmm. some of the the beautiful indigenous aspects of it and the architecture um, was just stunning. And so I think kind of um, leaning into researching how to find those like hidden gems really um, all throughout the U.S. and like kind of what makes this country not only geographically so beautiful, um, but even some of the cities and seeing the kind of melting pot effect, if you will, uh, besides New York and how they've kind of transformed and um, and made some really beautiful things. 
Uh, see, see, this is the advantage I had of being a military brat. I too grew up in Florida. I grew up in Colorado. I grew up in Maine. I grew up in New Hampshire. And a lot of the places you just mentioned, I've been to all of them, um, including the Springs down in, I, um, I spent four years of my childhood in Panama City, Florida, which is up in the Panhandle. And um, I've said this to anybody who will listen to me, and I don't think people quite get it yet. The most beautiful beaches in the United States are along the Gulf Coast. They are sugar white uh, and they have willows that support the infrastructure. By the way, it's illegal to pick those willows because they support the infrastructure along the beaches. I've seen people try to do it and get arrested. So don't do that. Just like don't touch the manatees. Um, But those beaches are gorgeous. And these people were practicing a form of ecotourism before they even knew what ecotourism was. And so I, I am so thankful that they were able to do all that. But you had written an article um, about national parks. It seems like you have an affinity for these national parks. You'd mentioned Yellowstone. You'd mentioned uh, the Grand Teton Mountains. What are some of your other great national parks that you like? Yeah, um, I always say the Shenandoah Valley, but you have to go in fall. Yes. (laughs) Change and you go, I think we're almost approaching it actually. It's like end of November where you hit peak leaf season. It's just literally nature showing off. I mean, every color you can imagine, you see red, orange, yellow, beautiful browns. Like it's just absolutely stunning. It looks like the valley is kind of on fire actually. Um, And so that to me is like a very underrated um, because, you know, the West coast gets a lot of love when it comes to the do. You know, people tend to overlook the East Coast. And I'm like, no, we also have some <laughs> some gems out here. Um, yeah. And I think, you know, obviously, when we talk about Hawaii, uh, which is full of national parks, um, you know, that was the first time I ever saw a volcano, actually, was at the, um, I'm, I'm blanking on the name, but the the Volcano National Park on the Big Island of Hawaii. I'm actually going there in December, by the way, so you can give me some pointers. Yeah. So when I went there, um, it was a very small little plume of smoke that was coming out. Of course, in recent years, it's erupted. And so I think they have a lot more action in terms of lava and whatnot. But I just thought, wow, this is really cool. And thus, a volcano addiction was born. (laughs) (laughs) Which is what led me to Guatemala, because I was like, I've never actually seen a volcano erupt. And I jokingly said, you should be cautious because every time I leave a place, it seems to erupt three days later. (laughs) I was in the Galapagos, the volcano went off in Indonesia, Hawaii. Um, But so, I mean, that was definitely, I've always been fascinated. And so to me, that was a a long time bucket list was to actually see lava. And um, the hike was treacherous. It was the hardest hike I've ever done. I got well, a little out. Well, well, back up for a minute because this you're mentioning stuff that came up in the pre-interview. So people don't know what you did in Guatemala. Tell them. <laughs> yeah, so I climbed the um, third tallest volcano in Central and South America. You're officially um, crazy, but go ahead. Yeah. So the first one was Octanego, which is the dormant volcano. And then Fuego is the active one. So like I mentioned, Fuego erupts every 20 to 30 minutes, um, pretty consistently. And, um, it did actually have a a pretty big eruption back in 2018 with quite a few casualties, 
Um, so, you know, there is definitely a risk and reward anytime you do these kinds of adventures. It's the way I travel is not for the faint of heart. That's for sure. Whether it's a volcano or, you know, swimming with a school of 300 hammerhead sharks, you know, I, I like to toe the line a little bit. Um, but, you know, to me, nature is just, is so beautiful. And that was another pure example of kind of nature showing off and to think that, you know, our earth is kind of capable of these things. You know, you've read about it, you've seen it on TV, you've seen it in movies, but to kind of see it, you know, in person, up close and personal, to feel, you know, the heat, to feel all the, the hair on your face kind of stand up and you're like, is it still going to be there? <laughs> <laughs> Look at her, Dave. Look at her. I'm watching. I'm watching. So, uh, you know, to kind of think like, you know, how, you know, how, how many great things that there, there really are in the world. And so that's kind of been my, my MO is to kind of explore as much as I can um, of it. And while I still can, because let me tell you, I did that hike. Everyone else was between the ages of 18 and 22. And, you know, I'm not old, but I'm, I'm not going to say you sure as hell are not. So, <laughs> so you know, I was the one in, in, in the back trailing behind with trying to fight altitude sickness, trying to get the lungs working and pumping. And, you know, everyone coming down the mountain was like, you can do it. You got this. One girl was like, oh, just breathe. I was like, I'm trying. You are breathing. I, I, this is what I've been trying to do for the last 10 hours. Thank you. <laughs> that 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 altitude is is no joke. Having grown up in Colorado Springs uh, yeah. for my last two years of high school, I mean Colorado Springs itself sixty six thousand feet above sea level, and right. then we we lived on the Air Force Academy, which is another thousand feet higher. So I remember the first month we were there, I was like this every day, <gasps> you know, just gasping for air because I couldn't find, I couldn't play sports or anything, I couldn't breathe. Yeah, it's no joke. And so this one was, I think, over three thousand meters. Okay. Uh, which you'll have to forgive me. Maybe David, you could answer this because <laughs> my conversions have, you know, they've, they've taken a hit since I've left Europe. Supposedly you, you can do this hike in a day, although I don't know who is crazy enough to do it in a day, but you take your backpack, you actually, um, you camp out on the volcano or Octanego, the, the dormant one. And then uh, your tent, if you're brave enough to keep it open, it gets pretty cold up there but you can keep the tent open and you can watch the volcano erupt literally all night. Um, and it's absolutely stunning. If you have the chutzpah, if you will, to do the hike, I definitely recommend anyone do it. It's the best thing I've ever done, but yeah, it's, it's not for the faint of heart for sure. It's a, it's a challenging physically, mentally, and mentally, every way, shape, form. I swam with sharks in the Bahamas and I said, never again. I, I don't know what got into my head, but not <laughs> yeah, again. We we talked about this and I was like, for me, the first time, but that was also my first um, experience was diving with sharks in the Bahamas. Uh, Mike, I don't know if, if we discussed this, but my first shark dive, I got a bloody nose. Yeah, you told me that. Yeah, I remember that. <laughs> which is probably the, the last thing you want to happen while you're swimming with sharks. Um, but, you know, there was over 50 sharks and I made it out of the boat. And, um, you know, they were like, do you still want to do the second dive? And I was like, well, I've made it this far. I s still have all my limbs. So maybe yeah. everything we've seen in movies <laughs> and in articles, 
you know, maybe, maybe it's not quite accurate. And so I went for the second dive. And from that point on, I was like, oh, these guys are great. And so that's kind of been my mission. Did you consult with uh, Richard Dyfus before you went on that track? No. <laughs> <laughs> no. But what happened? Did, did the shark try to kiss you? What, what happened there? No. So like I said, it was like, you know, sharks are curious by nature, uh, but it was, they didn't even look twice at me. So if they would come over and they'd be like, what's going on here? And then they keep moving. Um, you know, because humans aren't on the menu and sharks are, <laughs> you know, they are the true test of evolution. And so they've been, they've been passing every test with flying colors up until now, unfortunately. And, you know, humans are to think for that one or not really think. Well, but. I, I mean, we, we have given sharks such a bad name over time. And, uh, you know, it doesn't, I hate to bash the two TV networks that run Shark Week shows, but that doesn't help. Uh, even though they're based in science, it still doesn't help. Uh, and then, you know, we, we've heard all of the shark attacks up and down the eastern seaboard. A lot of that's because of climate change. Their natural yeah. habitats are warming up and sharks don't typically like that. So they're moving in the areas where they wouldn't otherwise be. And so, again, going back to your point, man's to blame for that. Yeah. Uh, unfortunately, but you know, I mean, the good thing about, um, and the reason why I like to come on podcasts with two great, lovely hosts, such as yourselves, um, you know, You're it's, fantastic. It's about, yes. Yeah. It's about spreading, uh, information and, and kind of causing yeah. awareness. And, you know, I wrote an article for trip savvy about 10 things you can do to save coral reefs when you travel. And, you know, like I said, on a basic level, it's something is like, you know, maybe bringing a reusable mug and, you know, maybe it's when you go um, shopping in, in the Caribbean, for example, or a tropical place, you don't buy things like seashells or coral right. or, um, you know, starfish. Because, you know, again, when there's money to be made, people won't really care, if, you know, if, if that animal or sea creature is dead before, they'll just take it out and dry it and then sell it to make a profit. So, you know, doing little things like that and knowing kind of even something is like what not to buy. When you're traveling, even that's something everyone can do, you know, reef safe sunscreen and and so on and so forth. See, that siren behind you was a warning. Don't do it. Let me fill in the blanks for you, because I read that. <laughs> don't don't touch. How about that? Yes, especially. Let's describe them. Let's describe them one by one. Do some research before your trip. Briefly. Yeah, of course. I mean. Go. Read a few articles. I, I certainly have enough out there. Um, and kind of like knowing where you go, you know, what's the, what are the kind of issues that plague this, at least on a sustainable level when you're traveling to a country. And a lot of places are now including on their website. So not only do they have um, like visit Key West, for example, or visit the Florida Keys, they have a whole page of sustainable tours you can do. Um, and people they've verified as you know, there's a solar panel boat I went on that you can do there. You know, you can actually replant coral reefs um, in Key West through the Coral Restoration Foundation. And so we're starting to see more and more tourism websites include this. And so even doing something as simple as that um, can really help you 
quote unquote, know before you go. Yeah. Right. Among the 10, one that grabbed my attention uh, mm-hmm. was skip coral souvenirs. Yeah. Yeah. That and is, so, that's important. Yeah. When I mentioned, you know, going to a gift shop, that's one of the things, you know, it, it might look beautiful in your house, but um, unfortunately you don't really know where it's coming from. So if it's a coral, bleach coral, for example, um, who's to say that coral was dead before you got it? You know, it's very possible. People could just rip it off the floor and then dye it. And then, you know, that's kind of what you're bringing home. And I think people don't, don't think about that. Just like, you know, when your food gets to your plate, you don't really think about the journey it had before it got there. And I think I touched upon that too, in my article is about, you know, uh, when you eat at local restaurants, you're kind of supporting local fishermen and that's sustainable within itself because uh, you're not uh, supporting the bigger fishermen and the commercial fishing, which unfortunately does have a devastating toll on the ecosystem of the ocean. Right. And you said pack smarter. What do you pack? What's packing like? Yeah. So pack smarter, again, to touch on like, you know, maybe bringing a sustainable coffee mug, maybe a reusable water bottle. Um, You know, maybe you bring your own to go utensils if you, you know, Mm -hmm. for the extra mile, if you will, Um, bringing reef safe sunscreen, Um, Mm -hmm. you know, even something as simple as like your clothes and, and what you're wearing, you know, um, choosing better fabrics, you know, a lot of swimwear is made with, with microplastics. Mm-hmm. So maybe you wear a sustainable swimsuit to the beach instead of, um, you know, something that's just made of a synthetic material that'll over time break down. Right. And the last one that I want to touch on, which is not on your list. This, this is just has been my experience. I stayed at a hotel once that would only change the sheets if you request. Yes. Mm-hmm. which I find extremely interesting because when you're home, you don't change your sheets every morning. Mm-hmm. Yet still, when you travel, you're expecting room service to change your sheets and your pillowcases and your towel. Yeah. And so, like I said, we're starting to see that pop up in hotels more and more where, you know, if you leave the towel on the floor, they will take the towel away. But they said, if you leave the towel on the rack, then we'll leave it there so you can use it the next day. So again, touching on, you know, not only bed sheets, but towels too. You know, you think about, I mean, I personally will use a towel more than once and, Mm -hmm. you know, I just wash it frequently. And so, yeah, it is kind of like when you go to a hotel, why do you need a fresh towel every day? And, you know, I think it's definitely a preference because, you know, that's my personal preference, but you are definitely going to meet someone who's like, no. I only use one towel a day. I wash it every day and I have multiple towels. And so, you know, I think just to have that option when you do travel more um, sustainably, or if that's kind of your MO in life, that is something that really might make a difference. And um, something else we're noticing is with lights, you know, when you put the key card in, if you take the key card out, then you're, you're saving energy that way as well. You know, I always tell people we don't need we don't need uh, a bunch of people doing sustainability like perfectly. Uh, You know, we need a bunch of people just kind of doing small things and kind of it's really it's a lifestyle practice, because when we talk about generational and, you know, this is all new. Plastic is new. 
you know, it's only been around for a a couple of decades, you know, so, you know, it's when we talk about like, you know, if you want to put a a label on it, like who, who's to blame, you know, it's not really like, I mean, sure we could blame plastic, but at the end of the day, it's about education. And, you know, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite authors is Maya Angelou. And she says, when you know better, you do better. Yep. That's true. So, you know, it's just about doing better. I mean, don't get me wrong. You will see me at Dunkin' Donuts getting a, a to go cup of coffee every now and then. Um, but you know, I try my best. I have my single right. bug. And so unfortunately the, that's the one actually opposite direction I've seen the pandemic go is where now they're not touching reusable cups anymore. Right. Uh, but before that, you know, I was on top of it and I'm sure we'll, we'll get back there, uh, eventually, yes. but you know, like I said, um, I think engineering is really the way of the future because people always ask me, you know, how do you stay positive during all this? You know, the, the numbers are debilitating. The science is debilitating. Like it's, it's pretty grim stuff when we, when you talk about these topics, but at the end of the day, you know, again, it goes back to my favorite quote of when you know better, you do better. And it's about, well, how do we get there? And having these conversations going on these podcasts, um, reading articles, watching documentaries. I mean, even something as simple as just sitting down with your family and friends at dinner, like, you know, kind of talking about these issues, I think slowly, but surely, yes, we need to get there now, but, <laughs> but I, I think, you know, it's, it's all, um, moving forward. And that's kind of the best we can hope for is that eventually, yeah, we're going to figure this out. And, you know, we keep adjusting and changing and compromising and eventually we're going to get to a place we need to be. And hopefully, you, you know, we can we can fight climate change or. At the very least, you know, come up with a some kind of solution and uh, we're making way at, at least get moving. That's the whole thing. Move. <laughs> yes. Yes. I, I have two questions left because we've had you on for an hour and a half now, which is way past what we normally do. But you're so interesting. We just I, I don't know about Dave, but I just felt like keeping you around for a while. So thank you. Uh, one of the questions I had is there is there a place, whether it has to do with ecotourism or not, that you've never been that you were just dying to go? Palau. Really? Sure. Yes. Dying to go to Palau. They have amazing diving. And what's so interesting about them is not only do they have on their website information about sustainable tourism, you have to sign when you get there a pledge. And actually, Iceland's been trying to do this as well, where you're going to a pledge to leave the country better than when you found it is essentially um, what they make you sign. And then they give you a stamp in your passport um, to, to say that you've like made this pledge, which I think is great because... Um, it's a very small country. And like I said, it's been so well protected for so long that it has become a really an eco haven for marine life. I mean, you'll find so many um, budding species. I mean, again, this is all from from what I've read and what I've been told. Um, but apparently it's pretty spectacular in terms of you want to talk about nature showing off. It's a full display. Wow. So that's 
right off the bat, that is definitely one of my number one places I want to travel. I was going to say you jumped right on that one without hesitation. Most of the time, if I ask that question, like, well, not you, you were like, bam, <laughs> that's yeah. good. Uh, and lastly, tell us a little bit about your website and where we can find some of your current uh, content and some of your future content. I know you're traveling a lot in the next couple of months. So start yeah. with your website. Yeah, absolutely. So um, City Girl Risk is my website. And basically how the name kind of came about was when I was living in Germany, you know, I always wanted to see the city. And then I was like, oh, let's see the city first. And then we can go to the off the beaten path destination in like the middle of France. And my friend was like, oh, well, you always want to stop to see the cities. And he was like, you're such a city girl. And it was like city girl wrist. <laughs> and so that's kind of how the name was born. And I was like, yeah, you know what? I do love cities. And you know, I think there's, I, I give it a much broader term. It's cities, it's towns, it's villages. Um, but really the whole MO is just kind of, um, my motto is depth over distance. So I don't think it's about the number of countries you went to. I think it's about the destination and your experience there. So whenever I travel, whenever I go somewhere, um, the experience is very important to me. So, you know, I do a lot of stories for work and a lot of um, specific articles I'm researching and so on and so forth. But at the end of the day, I also travel a lot on my own and, you know, what other friends I can convince to come on these crazy adventures with me. <laughs> um, but so like in Guatemala, for example, I hiked the volcano by myself. My friends, they, they weren't as quite as adventurous as I was. And rightfully so, they probably would have thrown me off the volcano had they come. And but they came for uh, they came for we went by the lake and we relaxed. And so that part, they were like, yeah, yeah, we'll come for that. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah. but so my website um, usually has personal trips I've been on. And then, of course, I write a lot about um, beauty and wellness and lifestyle. And then, of course, I have Instagram. I have a Facebook page. I have a Twitter and shameless plug time. Let us have those handles, girl. <laughs> at City Girl Wrist. You can find me in all of them. Okay. And so, um, and then marissaprincipe.com is my portfolio for all of my travel writing, beauty writing, fashion writing for some of my bigger publications like CBS. Um, I've written for the Meredith publication, which is Hello Giggles, Travel and Leisure, In Style Magazine, Shape. And now I'm actually an editor over at Give Me Astoria. So GiveMeAstoria.com. Shout out to all my Queens people. <laughs> <laughs> nice, nice, nice. Well, Marissa, like I said, we've kept you um, two shows worth now. Uh, so uh, you, you have to promise Dave and I one thing. You will come back because I, I have a sneaking suspicion we're going to have a lot of fun talking about some of your travels and just some of your general perceptions of life in general. So. Uh, do us the favor and come back sometime. Uh, absolutely. I'll be back anytime you guys have me. Cool, cool, cool. Well, uh, that is, we're going to wrap this up now. Cause like I said, Marissa's probably got to go out and get some coffee. Um, so on behalf of my dear friend, Dave Cumberbatch, this is Michael Gordon Bennett saying so long, and we'll see you next Monday on another edition of TripCast 360.